Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. And those were the Marvelettes. The Marvelettes. And why do we care about phone numbers this week? Well, why does the National Security Agency care about phone numbers? They care about all of our phone numbers. They want them all. They want them all, Ken. Not just the suspicious people, because... Everybody, after all, turns out to be suspicious. Right, especially us. Especially the National Security Agency. And this was the week that Americans remembered we had a National Security Agency and a National Security Advisor. And I don't know why people aren't protesting in the streets about what President Bush did. I think they did. And I think that oh, they wait a second. can... It's not President Bush. Well, in fact... It might be the same thing as President Bush. I mean, we've been doing this apparently for years. Senator Feinstein and Senator Saxby Chambliss of Georgia came out right after the news had been broken by the Guardian newspaper, British newspaper, with an American blogger named Glenn Greenwald, who's been on these issues for quite a long time. And these two senators came out and said, well, sure, the order that we're talking about right now has a time specific and it ends in July. But we're just going to renew it again because we've been doing this for quite some while. I just wonder what this does to the psyche of the country in the fact that there seems to be an unbelievable amount of invasion of personal space and monitoring. Now, they say they're not they're not listening in on the phone calls. Not but yet. Not yet. But I mean, but when, that's when, what everybody suspects. And it's not the next step. That's right. And and let's face it. I mean, having heard some of your phone calls, I don't think that I'd necessarily want to have but to I, listen yeah, to them. Yeah, but I, look, I had Prince Albert in a can. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is your refrigerator running? <laughs> yes. I think you better get after it. Well, all right. So... We are making light of this, but of course it's a very serious issue. If the government has this much information about whom you call, when you call them, how long you talk to them, and from which phone, that makes us all feel a bit creeped out. And you don't have to be Glenn Greenwald or someone else who is an aggressive, lawyerly, civil libertarian to find that disconcerting. It is disconcerting. Going back to the National Security Agency, we have a new National Security Advisor. Ah, yes, we do. Tom and, Donnellan. And who is, yeah, right. Tom Donnellan not having the last official day on the job he may have expected when he was setting up this meeting with the Chinese president. Xi, and the expectation was that he could finally focus on his big issue, the pivot to Asia, the Chinese opening, and uh, get the president pointed in the direction of the Pacific and away from the Middle East and European problems. But instead, he's having a day in which he has to focus entirely on this controversy that has blown up about the phone numbers being obtained by the National Security Agency. Another upcoming controversy may be in the person that President Obama has decided to replace Tom Donnelly with, and that's Susan Rice, of course, the UN ambassador. Um, by becoming national security advisor, he, she does not have to go through any kind of Senate confirmation, oh. which I'm sure will delight the Republicans who are such big fans of Susan Rice. They were so looking forward to seeing her. That's right. Well, look, Susan Rice is going to make the national security advisor position probably more famous than it's been in a long time. Yeah. You probably have to go all the way back to Henry Kissinger to find somebody else who's going to get as much attention uh, in Washington as Susan Rice will in this role, even though she will probably not seek it. Well, except for the fact that when you think of Kissinger, you think of a lot of the policy was emanating from Henry Kissinger. This seems to be an administration where it's really, really hands-on management from President Obama regarding the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and National Security. And the CIA. Exactly. Which has a huge role in our foreign policy. But this is the Obama policy, and this is emanating from the top. And I also believe that this is an Obama pick, not only in the sense of having great faith in her and thinking that she'll do a good job. Well, they're very close. We assume that he thinks those things, but also because he wants the loyalty of this person to be rewarded, and he wants to show loyalty to them. And 
he expects a certain amount of loyalty from the people in his innermost circle. And this is an extraordinarily sensitive position. And I think there's been some reports that Susan Rice may have felt like she was, quote, thrown under the bus when President Obama said, look, I'm not going to battle over this uh, Susan Rice for Secretary of State. I'll pick John Kerry instead. Uh, But again, he does return to that loyalty, rewarding Susan Rice with that position. Susan was a trusted advisor during my first campaign for president. She helped to build my foreign policy team and lead our diplomacy at the United Nations in my first term. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled thrilled that she'll be uh, back at my side leading my national security team in my second term. You know, speaking of uh, trusted advisors in his campaign, that also brings up the name Samantha Power. Samantha Power. Samantha Power will be the president's nominee to succeed Susan Rice at the U.N. Of course, that that post does require a Senate confirmation. And Samantha Power is assiduously uh, courting Republican support. But whenever I think of Samantha Power, I think of that very brutal characterization she made of Hillary Clinton during the 2008 campaign when she called her a monster, a monster. And, and willing to uh, stoop to any level mm. to get Get what she wants. Look, I mean, if you want to really go there, there's kind of a double uh, gesture here in the direction of Hillary Clinton because here she has left the administration where she was Secretary of State and by most all reports, very successful in the role, enormously loyal to Obama. Her husband, of course, uh, did a great deal to help reelect Barack Obama. And now that she's gone, these two replacement positions, now, of course, Susan Rice did not get to be Secretary of State, but She is getting promoted here in this administration, and so is Samantha Power, and both she and Samantha Power were known as people who were not the favorites of Hillary Clinton, particularly because in Susan Rice's case, she had actually worked for the Clintons back in the 1990s and yet turned to support Obama at the critical moment. If you could define Susan Rice as an in-your-face uh, appointment... Why uh, would it be in-your-face, Ken? Well, because the Republicans still are talking about talking points in Benghazi from back in the day when she was on all the Sunday talk shows. So the Republicans... That know was how in we... September of last fall, right. in the height of the presidential campaign. The fact is, every time you hear the word Benghazi, Gaza, you still hear Susan Rice's name attached to it, at least when Republicans are still trying to make this an issue. You know, I don't really buy the popular characterization of this, that the president is trying in some sense or another to defy or confront or in your face the Republicans in the Senate by appointing Susan Rice. He knows that they don't like her very much, and he knows that they blame her for uh, sort of tamping down the issue back in September when they had hoped it would be more of a torpedo for the Obama campaign and would help Mitt Romney more. Well, the way Mitt Romney brought that up in the debate didn't help Mitt Romney's campaign either. No, and perhaps it was badly handled by the Romney folks, and they could have gotten more mileage out of it. But some of the blame and the frustration and the and the anger associated with that time uh, has, I think, been transferred to Susan Rice. It was why they didn't want her for Secretary of State in large measure. But can you imagine the pushback that the president would be getting if he passed over Susan Rice twice, once for Secretary of State and now for National Security Advisor. He would be criticized for there not being enough women in the cabinet. He'd be criticized because she's African-American. He would take a lot of flack from the other direction if he didn't appoint her. It seems like the hesitation and the cautiousness that we saw President Obama in the first term is certainly not evident in the second term, certainly with the Susan Rice appointment, although I agree with you, I think that Susan Rice has served him loyally and ably, and he was going to promote her Regardless, but there seems to be another in your face moment for President Obama and the Republicans when the president announced this week his three nominees for the D.C. Circuit Court. These are no slouches. These are no hacks. These are incredibly accomplished lawyers by all accounts. And there are members of Congress here today 
who are ready to move forward uh, with these nominations, including the chairman, Patrick Leahy. So there's no reason, aside from politics, for Republicans to block these individuals from getting an up or down vote. You know, the funny thing is that the Republicans saying the president is trying to pack the court. Well, there have been these three vacancies. It's not that he's trying to add judges to a court that's already filled. You're filling vacancies. Exactly. You're which, packing the court. Which one, which the president supposedly should be doing. Now, of course, the Republican argument is that, one, the D.C. Circuit Court can lead to U.S. Supreme Court. Like Antonin Scalia and nominations, so that So that could be significant. And two, there are four Democratic-appointed judges on the court, four Republican-appointed judges. They would be very happy to leave it like that. The other problem is that, that the Republicans probably see the D.C. Circuit Court right now as conservative-leaning. Now that the president has nominated these three judges, two happen to be women, one is African-American, uh, it basically dares the Republican Party to vote against them. And remember when uh, John Ashcroft was up for confirmation for attorney general, he's dealing with the African-American judge, Ronnie White, almost torpedoed his nomination. I don't know if that's a good comparison, but the point is that he's basically daring the Republican Party to veto two female and one African-American nominees for the court. That's right. And aside from them being diverse, they're also Obama appointees. And any Obama appointees are almost certain to be objectionable to a certain group of the Republicans in the Senate. So he knows he's going to get a fight on this. He knows there'll be an attempt to filibuster them. Uh, Calling it packing is a little, well, it, it calls up the Franklin Roosevelt attempt to expand the Supreme Court and put a lot of new people on it and thereby change it radically, that blew up in his face. But in the long run, it helped him influence a change of attitude in the Supreme Court and helped FDR get more of his program accepted by the judiciary. And in the long run, this may help break the logjam by which many vacancies all through the federal judiciary have been left vacant in both Republican and Democratic administrations. I think part of this willingness for President Obama to just name who he really wants in the court rather than tiptoeing around uh, political considerations as he feels that, look, you know, I've tried to compromise. The Republicans have fought me every step in the way. A lot of perfectly acceptable to Obama uh, nominees have been held up for years by Republicans refusing to act on the nominations, similarly to what Democrats did to George Bush's administration, but to a far greater extent. So Obama could say, well, look, you know, I'm not going to worry about picking moderates or picking somebody who might not alienate Mitch McConnell. My point is, I'm going to get the guys I want because I'm going to get a fight no matter whom I nominate. I think that's exactly right. And I think we'll see more of that from the president, particularly because it's so difficult for him to move legislation, even in the Senate, where he has a Democratic majority, but especially in the House, where there's just no interest in in doing anything Obama wants to do. In fact, things they might normally do uh, rather happily, they're going to not do simply because they don't want to be seen as helping President Obama. I think that that's a I think that that's a judgment that you would hear from a lot of Republicans. Yeah, I haven't read also about the this other controversy, but I see that the first lady Michelle Obama got into a spat with former Congresswoman Margaret Heckler of Massachusetts. <laughs> I missed that. Was that wrong? <laughs> well, let's listen to what she said when she was interrupted by a uh, pro gay rights Heckler. Oh, and not Margaret Heckler. Actually, I wouldn't absolutely swear it wasn't Margaret, but she didn't look much like her. And I don't care what you believe in. We don't. Oh, wait, wait, wait. One of the things I one of the things that I don't do well is this. So off mic, the first lady walked out into the audience and uh, basically said, look, you can have the mic and I'll just leave. 
And everybody said, no, no, and no. And everybody said, no, don't leave, Michelle. The irony is that the, is that the protester is a gay rights supporter who said that the Obama administration has not been doing enough for gays and lesbians. That's right. And had given the requisite amount to attend the fundraiser and was using this opportunity to heckle the first lady. I'm sure she would have preferred to heckle the president. You remember uh, when he was speaking at the uh, National Defense University a few weeks ago, the president was heckled and essentially allowed Medea Benjamin, who is a code pink. Uh, anti-war activist to almost shout him down and uh, allowed her to uh, speak several times and then made several uh, almost conciliatory references to her in his own remarks. Uh, Now we're seeing maybe a little more of a natural sort of, wait a minute, okay, enough of this sort of response. That that was certainly the way Michelle Obama handled it, right? I think maybe we should let Michelle Obama handle more things for this administration. And I still feel bad for Margaret Heckler. You know who I feel bad for? Who's that? I feel bad for Chris Christie because he has to decide some really kind of difficult things with respect to the Republican Party in New Jersey and his own political career. Here's a guy who clearly has a lot on his mind. You know, it's interesting. He was cruising to a, to a re-election victory over... Still is. He won on Tuesday. He and Barbara Bono won their Republican. yes. And I'm not sure how respective it was, but it was Republican and Democratic primaries. Uh, and he was cruising to a big victory in November. Uh, Frank Lautenberg, the longest-serving senator in New Jersey history and the last remaining World War II veteran Amazing. in the Senate. Yep. The last That's World War II veteran. Died at 89 on Monday. His death has given... Chris Christie, not only headaches, but decisions that seems to have alienated both Republicans and Democrats. Well, I understand why Democrats are a little put off, because here they're going to have to have a special election 20 days before the regular election in November, just for this one office, just for this partial term, the unexpired months of Frank Lautenberg's term through uh, 2014. And it's going to cost some money. You know, we can have some kind of a discussion here about exactly how much money, but double-digit millions will have to be spent. Yes, I've heard less smaller figures, but well, let's just say $24 million. I don't know what the cost is, and I quite frankly don't care. I don't think you can put a price tag on what it's worth to have an elected person in the United States Senate, and I will do whatever I need to do to make sure those costs are covered because all the people of the state of New Jersey will benefit from it, and we're not going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish around here. <laughs> penny-wise and Pound foolish? Yeah, I saw them in concert. There might have been, who knows, maybe even more than one pound. And the last Republican appointed to the U.S. Senate from New Jersey? Nicholas Brady. Wow, very nice. Yes. Thomas Kane. I knew knew Nicholas Brady. I worked in the Senate with Nicholas Brady. And I'm no Nicholas Brady? you are no Nicholas Brady. He was uh, appointed to succeed whom? Williams, Harrison Williams. You're absolutely right. You get a political junkie t-shirt and a no-prize button. Oh, it's the wrong show. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. Governor Christie could have had the special Senate election on November 5th, along with the gubernatorial election, but instead... What harm would that do? But it's he said, 20 days later. Right, but he says, no, I want it as soon as possible, so therefore an August 13th primary, an October 16th general election, and the reason, of course, he's doing this... Just because he wants New Jersey to have to representation have as soon as possible. choice 20 days sooner, which I think includes six actual calendar days of the Senate meeting. But it also means that Cory Booker, who right now looks to be the leading Democrat for the the Lautenberg seat, he will not be on the November 5th ballot when not only is Chris Christie up for re-election, but all 120 members of the New Jersey state legislature. But she can. And Cory Booker could bring a very enthused African-American turnout to the polls, which could jeopardize Chris Christie's great victory that he's going to present to Iowa and New Hampshire. I see. So he's, he's doing this to protect the size of his margin. 
Which was which has been which reduced is a considerable surgery, margin yes. to surgery, and also to protect the Republican seats in the New Jersey legislature. That's what I think he's doing. But also at the same time, he may be doing something to the Democratic Party, which the Democratic Party wouldn't have had if the election were in 2014. In 2014, Cory Booker was, of course, thought to be the front runner. But the, the Democrats who were thinking of challenging him, Congressman Frank Pallone, Rush Holt. For example, um, they would have had to give up their House seats to run against him. Now, in a special 2013 election, they might they, they jeopardize a nothing. Shot. A it's a free shot. shot. Yeah. So they could bloody Cory Booker. But there's a lot of resentment in the party. I don't know how significant it is. But Cory Booker was talking about running for the Senate against Frank Lautenberg while Frank Lautenberg has not decided when to retire. And there's resentment that he was just he's too in a hurry. He didn't pay his dues. And Frank Pallone would love to go to the Jersey Democratic bosses who decide the ballot position in each county saying, look, this guy wasn't sufficiently loyal to our dear Frank Lautenberg. So mm. there could be some and you know, battling going that on. That kind of loyalty to somebody who was 89 years old and so forth. How important is that going to be to them, really? Frank Lautenberg, in his long career, and it started in 1983 in the Senate, he has bankrolled many of the county Democratic parties throughout his career, and there's a certain loyalty they owe or owe to him. Of course, remember, in his waning months, Lautenberg constantly criticized Cory Booker for being disrespectful, that he's leaving a city that still has a lot of problems. So Lautenberg made it clear that he had this peak about uh, Cory Booker. Whether the voters agree with that remains to be seen. All right, but Republicans had some reasons to be dyspeptic about this decision, too, because, among other things, among other options, uh, Chris Christie could have just appointed a Republican to the seat and let that person serve all the way through 2013 and 2014, and that would be one more vote for the Republicans in the Senate for a year and a half. That was interesting that uh, of uh, all the Democrats who were complaining about what Chris Christie did, but Harry Reid, the Democratic leader in the Senate, said, hey, this is great news. Works for me. I'm going to have another Democrat in the Senate in October. I think you mentioned already that Frank Lautenberg, uh, who is being buried at Arlington National Cemetery this week, was the last surviving World War II veteran in the United States Senate, and there are just two left in the House. Right. One of them is uh, Ralph Hall, the Republican congressman, former Democrat from Texas, and John Dingell, who on Friday becomes the longest person. He's like 12 feet tall. Oh, he's incredibly very long. long yeah. uh, the longest person to serve in the, the Congress. 57 years, 5 months, and 27 days. You know, it really doesn't seem like more than 55 or 56 years. What, this podcast? This, this service. This, uh, John Dingell, of course, in 1955, replaced his father, ironically named... John Dingell Sr. Well, what are the odds of that? It's really incredible. And, but, but what's even more incredible is yeah. that now John Dingell Jr. has outlived the political ambitions of both his wife and his son, both of whom we thought were planning to represent Michigan in that seat at some point when John Dingell went to his reward or decided to retire. There's some whispering that that John Dingell, having now broken the record, uh, which was formerly held by Robert Byrd of West Virginia, um, John Dingell may not run for another term in 2014. And there's some discussion about Debbie Dingell, who was talking about running for the Carl Levin Senate seat. She might succeed him in the House. But uh, anyway, John Dingell, I mean, he used to be a feared, ornery, he put terror in the hearts of many members of Congress, but uh, he's turned out to be almost sympathetic and likable in his later years. And by the way, speaking of likable, Joe Biden is probably never more likable than when he entertains, is that the right word, uh, in, in the eulogies that he gives at funerals for famous people, including senators and foreign leaders. Uh, here he is at Frank Lautenberg's memorial service this week. I am like those old commercials 
running for the airplane, jumping over chairs. I'm carrying my bag, which seemed like my staff deliberately loaded down with weights to slow me down. <laughs> and I swear to God, true story, I get up, conductor boy says, hey, hey, Joe, 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 hold up, don't worry. You're okay. We're holding it for Lautenberg. <laughs> By the way, speaking of replacing senators and uh, special elections, we still have the one on June 25th coming up in Massachusetts, currently held by the very venerable Mo Cowan. But both uh, Democrat Ed Markey and Republican Gabriel Gomez had this pretty heated debate this yes. week. I know the polls are all over the map. I still think that Markey wins probably a little kind of comfortably. I know the president is going to a fundraiser for him next week, but there are some Republicans who think that Gomez can duplicate the miracle of Scott Brown in 2013. I don't Circumstances see are almost I entirely agree. different. The, the main thing that's the same is that in those months, President Obama seemed to be reeling from a series of blows, some of which may have been self-inflicted, and uh, it visited itself, if you will, on Martha Coakley, who was the Democratic nominee at the time. But she was also a poor candidate at that time. Right, She's right. probably improved a great deal as a politician since and become more popular. But she lost that race as much as Scott Brown won it, and we saw the... Democratic turnout in Massachusetts recover massively in 2012. We'll see what happens in terms of the turnout here. But if you get a big turnout, it seems unlikely that Gomez could win. Well, if Scott Brown was a Mr. Smith going to Washington, we have an actual Mr. Smith going to Washington in Missouri's 8th Congressional District this week. That's right. Jason Smith. And he was the Republican in one of the most Republican districts in Missouri and one of the most Republican in the country. Very conservative district. And he is replacing Joanne Emerson, who retires after having replaced her husband, Bill Emerson, who died a number of years ago. Right. A very conservative seat. The Republicans have held it since Bill Emerson won the seat in 1981. I always like to say it's the home of Cape Girardeau on the Mississippi River, and that is the hometown of Rush Limbaugh. And speaking of Rush Limbaugh, one of his favorites in the Congress, uh, Michelle Bachman, of course, announced last week that she would not run again. And one of the reasons everybody assumed that she was not going to run again is because Jim Graves, the guy who almost beat her in 2012, is running again. But suddenly... Once Michelle Bachman said she's not running, Jim Graves said, uh, I'm not running either. Well, that's probably because this is the most Republican district in Minnesota, the 6th, and it was going to cost a lot of money for him to run. He could raise it if he was running against he's Michelle a wealthy Bachman, guy. Yeah. or he could spend a good deal of his own money, but it becomes an entirely different race if he's running against a more, shall we say, uh, conventional Republican. Right. Something that's not conventional is in South Florida. In 2012, David Rivera was a Republican incumbent involved in campaign ethics problems. He was beaten by a Democrat by the name of Joe Garcia. Now Joe Garcia, lo and behold, finds himself with an ethics problem. Yes, and I believe his chief of staff has had to resign, and there was some talk of uh, inflating the voter turnout. Fraudulent absentee ballot requests. And in you the can imagine what primary, that which does is, in which Florida. Is, which is exactly, which is illegal. Catherine Harris was astounded that would happen. And that was something that could never happen in Florida. So moving just a little further north, and I think into your interest wheelhouse, a former Miss America is running in the state of uh, Illinois. Yes, that's Erica Harold, uh, which is very interesting. She is uh, Miss America from 2003, and she wanted to run for Congress. This is kind of interesting, or maybe not interesting, but uh, Timothy Johnson, a Republican from Illinois, decided after he won the primary in 2012, he just resigned. So the Republican establishment rallied behind Rodney Davis, even though she wanted the seat. So now Erica Harold has announced that she will challenge Rodney Davis in a marginally pretty even district, but she is so conservative that it's going to probably make Davis move more to the right to win the primary. So you're saying that Rodney Davis can still get the nomination and still be the Republican nominee? 
Well, whoever wins it, it will probably be a weakened Republican Party. And, of course, this is good news for the Democrats, who will once again pick up another seat in Illinois coming off the great year they had in 2012. But we can hope, at least, that Miss America could prevail in the primary. And then in November, imagine a Miss America serving in the House of Representatives. Imagine ending the podcast with a song related to that. Let's see if we can think of one. And that's it for this week's political podcast. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Rachel Lashinsky and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again next week for It's All Politics from NPR. Oh, man, she is.